Please take your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. All right, in case anybody missed that, Josiah said kids are going out to Children's Church, and I see some still going out, so that's okay. Here we go. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. Here's the big idea that we want you to go home remembering today as we go through this Easter series. All right. We can believe the evangelist's record concerning the arrest, trial, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Did you pay attention during the scripture reading this morning why John wrote what he wrote? was so that we would believe. And so that's the whole point of this Easter series. Uh, we started it out last week with the arrest of Jesus. And then today, and Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll look at the trial of Jesus, uh, or you might say the trials of Jesus, not trials as in hardship, but trials as in legal proceedings. And today we're going to look at the Hebrew trial of Jesus. Then he was transferred from Hebrew custody, so to speak, to Roman custody. So we'll look at the Roman trial, then Lord willing, next Sunday. And then we'll look at his crucifixion and his resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. So in Mark chapter 14, we have the uh, inspired record of the Hebrew trial that Jesus faced. All right, so beginning in Mark 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off, uh, even into the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain false witnesses against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Uh, what is that which these witnesses uh, say against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting upon the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover uh, his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy! And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Now, each one of the gospel accounts has somewhat of a parallel account. Um, so you can find these in the Easter story in each one of the gospels. Another one that I will be alluding to today comes from Matthew chapter 26, 
So if you want to put a piece of paper in Mark, and then also Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68, I'll be referring to some of the detail that goes along with that. All right, so the whole point here today is this, that you can believe the record of the Gospels as they're presented. They are the historical record of the trial of Jesus Christ. We looked at last week the credibility of the apostles as witnesses. So we established that. Uh, they're honest men. Um, they were eyewitnesses of what happened. So we have a first-hand account, not third-party information. Uh, and their intent was that you might believe. So today, we're going to look at this facet of the trial, uh, of the Hebrew trial of Jesus. And so let's look here at the Jewish legal system for just a moment. So this involves uh, explaining some information from the Old Testament. We'll look at some verses, or I'll read them, and if you're fast enough to turn there, you, you can turn there as well. I mean, some of you have your electronic phones. You might be able to get there faster than people with pages, right? But just on the way to different passages, don't get caught up on Instagram or Facebook. That's just my caveat, all right? So the Jewish legal system. All right, here's three bullet points, and then we'll talk about these. The witnesses functioned as the accusers and others as defenders. All right, so there were no lawyers. There was no grand jury. A grand jury many times will hear the evidence that the prosecuting attorney wants to uh, take to a court, and the grand jury has to listen to that evidence and say, yes, that's worthy evidence and we should move forward with a trial, or no, that's not worthy evidence and so there's no trial. Well, that just didn't exist in the day of Jesus. So if someone was an accuser, they were acting as the prosecuting attorney. And then if you needed a defense, well, your witnesses that were going to defend you acted as the defending attorney. So the witnesses functioned as accusers and others as defenders. And we'll read some scripture verses that kind of set some parameters and guidelines for these witnesses. All right, then the religious leaders functioned as the judges. Now, there was in the time of Jesus a council of 70 men, and it was called the Sanhedrin. We don't know exactly when this body was formed, but it was 70 men who were the elders or the rulers of the nation of Israel. Now you can go back to the book of Numbers and you can see that Moses was, was facing just a leadership problem. Uh, he was overwhelmed, he was swamped with responsibility and his father-in-law said, Moses, you know what, you just gotta give some of this away. And God provided Moses with 70 men that he filled with the Holy Spirit. So some people say that's when the Council of Seventy began, all the way back in the days of Moses, then run it forward a couple of thousand years to the time of Jesus, and this Council of Seventy men is still uh, the rulers of the nation. And so they functioned as the judges. All right, and then the defendant had a right to a defense. What we're going to see today in the Hebrew trial of Jesus was an atrocity of the Jewish legal system because never once 
was Jesus given the opportunity to have a defense. There were no witnesses called on his behalf. None. There was no honest investigation of the facts. So the witnesses were the lawyers. All right, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. If you want to turn there, I'm just going to read it, make some thoughts, and then move on from there. At the mouth of two or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. <clears throat> now, in our reading in Mark chapter 14, you could already see the bias. Last week you saw the bias. The arrest of Jesus had already been fabricated behind the scenes. They wanted to put him to death. And that's why they arrested him. So as they come to trial, the Hebrew trial, they already have the motive that we want to put him to death. And so they have to come up with some witnesses now. So they're acting as the religious council in the role of fabricating witnesses to bring accusations against Jesus. And so they can't have just one. But what do they want to do? They want to put him to death. So according to Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, they have to have multiple witnesses. And the judges then would have to interview them separately. And all of the facts of what the witnesses were saying had to match law for the case to stand, to have any merit. And so not just one witness, but two or three. All right, also Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. In any sin, he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. So for any legal standing in the Jewish legal system, there had to be an agreement of the witnesses for this to stand, for this matter to be established. This is what the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. All right, now let's just take a moment here and just do some application. Um, in a New Testament church, if you think somebody is involved in a sin, you just don't go around and start blabbering it. All right? you have to go to that person one-on-one, -on -one, sit down with them and talk with them. Maybe it's just your difference of an opinion. You have to have scripture as the basis of what you're presenting. And if you just differ in an opinion, then you just need to realize that people are different, all right? But if what is really there is sin, you're free to have that conversation with them and to show them their sin, and to reunite them in fellowship with their Savior and with you, because you've taken offense at their sin. Now, what happens if they don't listen to you? 
exactly what the Jewish legal system was designed to do, establish a matter by the mouth of two or three other witnesses. So you go get one or two other friends and you bring them with you and you sit down and have a second conversation with that brother or sister. And if they listen to you and everything is restored, it's good. They're back in fellowship with the Lord. They're back in fellowship with you. They're set free in their life. They're not under the dominion of sin. And you're not crazy because you've had the scripture to verify what you've seen. If they don't listen to you, then you bring it before the leadership of the church. And if they won't listen to the church, now be careful here because there needs to be some time to secure repentance, right? So you just don't chop somebody off and kick them out of your church right away. So the whole church pleads with them. So you plead with them, a small group of you plead with them, the church pleads with them, and if they don't listen to the church, then you go to the fourth and the most drastic step, and that is you remove them from the fellowship of the church. Now, in my 25 years of pastoring, praise God, that's only happened once, all right? And uh, it was over a seven-year process of working with an individual. And uh, there was great love and a great investment, so there was no doubt that we loved the individual, and that's why it took seven years, but at the end of seven years, they were just not willing to give up their sin. They were continuing to live in that sin for seven years. Now, I've not been here at Calvary for seven years, so it didn't happen here, all right? Um, but sometimes as a church, we just fail to go to that level, um, and that's not right. But we did have um, many, many people that were involved in that whole process, and it was done biblically, it was done sequentially according to the steps that were there. All right, so that's the process that still applies for the church today, all right? So if you will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established, Matthew 18, verse 16. Now, do you know that pastors sin? Come on, shake your head, yes or no. All right, they do. All right, yeah, I'll be honest with you, I, I sin. And just like any other Christian, I have to confess my sins to the Lord. But if sin gets a hold of my life and begins to control me, and you see that, then you have an obligation to come and to confront me about my sin in my life. But now notice from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Against an elder, an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So that just right away goes to the level of church discipline. And you re rebuke an elder that is sinning, that the body may understand sin is a serious thing. So that's why there's congregational accountability. And so I stand under the authority of the church. I don't stand as a Lord above the church. But once again, the criteria is this, but before two or three witnesses. And so that was the Jewish legal system. So if they're going to have this ulterior motive, let's arrest Jesus so we can put him to death, and their trial, they're trying to fabricate the witnesses so they can put him to death, then they have to have an agreement amongst their witnesses for this to be established, to go forward. So, if you will look with me, uh, once again, back in your Mark 14, 56, it says, for many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. 
All right. So this is interesting. These wicked judges, this, this council of Israel, they're the ones that are pulling the witnesses in, trying to get people to testify against Jesus. I mean, this is already botched, all right? But even they say, oh, wow, this is so, this is so messed up. Nobody can agree. The charges don't stand because the witnesses can't agree. So the facts didn't agree with the law. So the case is without merit. So this is what scripture clearly says. Now, uh, this comes from Alfred uh, Erdesheim's book, The Life and the Time of Jesus. And this is his quote about the accusers and the judges of Israel. It says, in their desperation, the members of the Sanhedrin were compelled to employ false testimony. And then the forced confession of Jesus was equally illegal. All right, you know what's missing in the gospel record? Not one defense witness is called. So I don't have anything to show you. No one was called to defend Jesus whatsoever. So there were no defenders. There were just accusers. All right. So here's what um, another man said about this council of 70. He said, the religious leaders of Israel received the maledictions of the human race because they denied Jesus all defense. Take your Bibles, go over to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 14. Deuteronomy 13, verse 14. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the fifth book of the Bible. It's in your Old Testament, five books in. Chapter 13 and the 14th verse. God is establishing the ground rules for the judges, when there's a case that's brought before them, what is their responsibility in this matter? All right, Deuteronomy 13, 14. Then shalt thou inquire and make search and ask what? Diligently. All right, inquire, make search, ask diligently. The judges did none of this with Jesus. They disqualified themselves from being competent judges. Now, did you know that Judaism, even today, and back in the time of Jesus, was really not a faith that had one source of authority? They didn't just have the Bible. They had their oral tradition. And the oral tradition... Uh, was either called the Jerusalem uh, Talmud or the Babylonian Talmud, and that Talmud was made up of two different divisions. The legal side of it was called the Mishnah, right? And so the Mishnah said this about the judges. They must search for the truth in, quote, the sincerity of conscience. So that's how they inter interpreted Deuteronomy 13, 14. Thou shalt inquire and make search and ask diligently. In other words, in their own conscience, they had to have sincerity. Now, if you don't know what the word sincere means, it means without wax. 
It was a pottery term. And someone who made pottery, if they were dishonest, is they fired a vessel in their oven and it cracked, they would bring it out and they're like, ooh, just a small crack, I'd like to, I'd like to sell this. So what they would do is they would glaze it with wax and then paint over it. And so in the ancient world, when they went to buy a uh, pottery vessel, they would hold it up into the bright light. Ooh, wow, yeah, it's a little bright, all right? And uh, so they would hold it up to the, the steady penetrating light of the sun. And as they turned it around and examined it, they would say to themselves, oh, this is sincere, meaning without wax. So the Jewish leaders were supposed to, under the scrutiny of God's examination and their own conscience, say, there's nothing in me that's trying to cover something up. There's nothing in me that's hypocritical. Be pure in the conscience. But can we say this about the religious leaders at this point in the Hebrew trial of Jesus? No, we cannot. Because they arrested him under false pretenses, and now they're trying him with false witnesses, which, by the way, are so incompetent that they know it. They know that they're not going to be able to have a case stand against Jesus. Uh, Deuter Deuteronomy 19:18, And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother. So, somehow, they saw that the witnesses that they brought in were so bad that they said, yeah, that's just false testimony. We can't use it. All right. So, let's go back to uh, the Matthew passage for just a moment. And um, I want you to look at verse 57. So, this is Matthew 26, verse 57. And they that laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. All right. But Peter followed him afar off into the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. All right, so Caiaphas is the high priest, all right? But in the passage in John, it says they led him away to Caiaphas' father-in-law first. His name was Annas. And he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas. He was the, what you would call, the retired high priest. Now, this is not intended to endorse the thinking. But if you heard Americans talk about the Biden presidency and ask the question, who's really calling the shots? Have you ever heard that? That's what's going on here in this passage. Caiaphas, even though he's the high priest, is not really calling the shots. His father-in-law, Annas, is calling the shots. As a matter of fact, Caiaphas didn't hold the high priest position very long, and through a succession of sons and sons-in-laws, the family of Caiaphas maintained that for six different men in that office under the Roman administration of Israel. And so what's going on here, why they took Jesus to Annas first was because there was a motive. Earlier in the week, Jesus did something that ticked them off. What did he do? Do you remember? 
flipping the tables over and running the money changers out. You shall not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And what the religious leaders were doing, what the family of Annas and Caiaphas were doing, they were making money. Follow the money, right? And so here's the political shots behind the scenes that we don't see. They're upset at Jesus for ruining their financial profit. How are they supposed to pay the Romans off? How are they supposed to keep things going? How are they supposed to keep becoming wealthy? And so they lead him to the father-in-law first, and he's like, I've got you. All right? Now I'm going to send you to trial. I'm going to send you to Caiaphas. And by the way, this is all done very shadily. It's done at night when the crowds will not see what's going on. So it's all done very secretly. And so they also have the political power. So this comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 47 through 53. I want you to see this, all right? Because this is the motivation for the murder of Jesus by the religious leaders. John, chapter 11, verses 47 through 53. Please turn there. Beginning in verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a what? Council and said, what do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our what? Our place and our nation. So they're, they're upset with this Jesus because he's disturbing the political environment. And he's getting many followers, many people. All men will believe on him if we don't do something. So verse 49. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us. In other words, it's to our advantage. Now catch this. Listen to what he's saying. That it is expedient, convenient for us, that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together to do what? Put him to death. So here, months before... We've got to do something about this guy. He's upsetting the arrangement that we have with the Romans. He's cleansing the temple. He's, he's messing with our personal profit. So they have political and financial motives for their murder. Okay? And so this is where it says in the Gospel of John, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So the father-in-law ran things privately through his sons and sons-in-laws. He was the real leader behind the scenes. Jesus had cleansed the temple by overturning the money tables just a few days before. And as the former high priest, um, he was unable to provide the Romans with the wealth. All right, so... 
as the defendant, then, to have a case against the person, you must have two things, facts and law. Do the facts in the Gospels as presented match up with the law that I've read to you from Deuteronomy? No, they don't. So if you have a case, if the facts and the law agree, but if they don't agree, then your case fails. So let's look at the Jewish charges here. All right, charge number one is sedition. Now we read this. The witnesses come in and they say, we heard this man say, destroy this temple that's made with hands, in three days I'll build again another one without hands. So they're thinking a physical building. You know what that charge is that they brought against Jesus? Was sedition. You're going to destroy a national landmark, which is the, the center of religious Jewish life. You're threatening the nation. We charge you with sedition. That's charge number one. The witnesses come in. The judges have brought these witnesses in, but they have to interview them privately. And they found out as they interviewed their own witnesses, guys, We've messed this up so bad, we can't even deny that these are false witnesses. What should have been done at that point in the Hebrew trial against Jesus? What do you think? Should have been dismissed. Jesus should have been released. He's committed no crime. But this was not what they did. Okay? So... If you will go back to Mark 14 and just look at the passage there, it says here, Answerest thou nothing? They're saying all kinds of things against you. Jesus didn't need to open his mouth. He knew that whatever they saying was a lie. And he knew that they didn't agree. So Jesus just remained silent. And so that brings us to uh, verse 59 and 60. But then in verse 61, something happens. But he held his peace. Jesus answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? What is going on here? In verse 61. The judge is asking the defendant to incriminate himself. That's what's going on. Now, Jesus cannot deny the truth. And so he answers truthfully. In verse 62, and Jesus answered and said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Amen, Jesus, for being so bold to speak the truth in a time when it would have been easy to be intimidated. But he was bold, and he spoke the truth about who he was. He couldn't deny who he was. And at this comment, then, the high priest rips his clothes and says, what need we any further witnesses? What a good question. What need indeed? 
You cannot ask a witness to incriminate themselves, even today in our legal system. And you couldn't do it back in the day under the Jewish legal system. So you're going to say, oh, but they all heard him say it. All right, well, we'll evaluate the second charge, which is on your screen there, is blasphemy. So they say, this man, uh, they've all heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. All right. So is the second charge of blasphemy legitimate from the law? All right, so let's look at this one. So let's take our Bibles, and I want you to uh, go to some of the Old Testament passages here. This is Leviticus chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. So this is the definition of blasphemy from the Old Testament law. Leviticus 24, verses 15 and 16. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, this is cursing the name of God. Uh, don't you wish that so many Americans wouldn't use the name of Jesus Christ as a cuss word? Should bother you, by the way. And you can politely ask people not to, to take the name of the Lord God in vain in front of you. And just remind them it's one of the Ten Commandments. All right? Do it graciously. Um, I can remember when I worked for Asplin, which is a tree trimming company. Um, the men knew that I was a pastor, and every once in a while they would forget that I was a pastor because I was just one of their co-workers, and they would get on a little cussing blue streak in front of me, and all of a sudden it would dawn on them again. I'm doing that right in front of a pastor! And then they would say something like, oh, I'm so sorry! And I'm like, hey, I'm just a human being. I'm not the one you have to apologize to. Ooh. Yeah, I guess you're right. I need to apologize to God, right? And um, so anyway, did Jesus curse the name of God in his interview with the religious leaders? He's not guilty of blasphemy, okay? Um, in their oral tradition, and this is interesting because I was on a, a Reformed Judaism website just to, to kind of verify this thinking, and this was just written about a month ago, um, and this is a rabbi's interpretation of the Mishnah, which is the oral law, and he says that the penalty of stoning uh, for the blasphemer applies only where he specifically used the tetragrammaton, which is the four-letter name of God, which we say is Yahweh or Jehovah, um, to curse God. For both historical and theological reasons, the rabbis uh, desisted from prosecuting blasphemy as a capital crime and ins ins insist uh, instead evolved a system of public censure for a total of 25 serious variations of blasphemy. So here's a modern-day rabbi saying we don't put people to death for blasphemy anymore. And they didn't do it back then. And he's quoting the Mishnah, which was around when Jesus was alive. So the religious leaders in the time of Jesus were even going against what was written in the Mishnah. And so have you ever heard a pastor say that the Jews lost the power to put somebody to death? Have you ever heard that? Okay. 
That's one viewpoint. The second viewpoint was that their own legal system had evolved to the point where they thought it was barbarous if there was one capital crime uh, where there's capital punishment, one person in seven years was way too much for them. So they just didn't put people to death. So it just goes to show you the extent of the hatred, the jealousy in their heart toward Jesus. If they're going against even their oral tradition and against the scriptures. All right, here's another one, Deuteronomy 13.5. Here's another possible definition of this. And that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Did Jesus, in his interview with the religious leaders, say, follow another God? No. So Jesus, according to the law, is not even guilty of blasphemy. So what further need of witnesses? Well, to defend himself. Okay? So the Hebrew judges were not supposed to originate the charges. They only investigated the charges that were brought before them. What was the need for further witnesses? Well, to provide Jesus a defense. But did they provide Jesus a defense? What do you think? What's the historical record say? Not at all. So, Caiaphas was not justified with refusing Jesus an opportunity to prove his equality with Jehovah. Now, on the positive declaration of saying that Jesus did commit blasphemy, Listen to what Jesus said in his own lifetime. All right, listen closely. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. John chapter 10, verse 30. The, Jones, the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus because he said that God was his Father making himself equal with God. John 8, 58. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. All right? In another account, there's a quadriplegic man that's brought in to Jesus through the roof of the house that Jesus is teaching in. I'm amazed that Jesus tolerated that. And um, so here comes this man on this pallet brought down before Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And the religious leaders were sitting there, and they're just like, <laughs> their head popped. They said, wait a minute. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This man blasphemes. So, on the legal account, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, no, Jesus wasn't guilty of blasphemy. So all Jewish charges fail. The case fails. Facts and law don't go together. But outside of the legal trial, Jesus many times said that he was God. And that's what the gospel accounts record for us about Jesus. That is... He is perfectly God and man inseparably joined together at the same time. You can't separate his deity from his humanity. He's the perfect God-man. He's without limit. 
So had they called for their witnesses, there's a really good chance that when you put yourself under the sound of Scripture and you're humble in your response to Scripture, that you might just have your opinion changed. They could have come away with a different opinion. Instead of just seeing Jesus as a man who threatened them at that time, they might have had their opinion changed if they diligently searched, inquired, and went deep to the recesses of their conscience and held themselves accountable with the scriptures. And they might have come away from that trial saying, he is our Messiah. He is our King. They could have seen the prophecy of his birth. They could even see prophecy in their own trial being fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled all kinds of scriptures from the place that he was born to the fact that he suffered. Isaiah 53, he is a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. Now the ultimate sign that Jesus gave to them that he was their Messiah was his resurrection. But now that wasn't in view at the point, was it? So they were willingly biased and prejudiced against him. And so it was, if you would, a private murder. All right. Um, so here's the conclusion. The Hebrew case or trial failed legally because the judges could not apply the facts to the law. Jesus then was never legally tried or legally convicted. His condemnation was not based upon legal procedure that was in harmony with the Mosaic Code or even the Mishnah. He suffered then as a just person or us as unjust people. It's interesting, why are there two trials? Well, the Hebrew trial, so that the Hebrews would know that he suffered for them. For the Romans, so that all Gentiles may know that he suffered as the just one for us, the unjust. From a human standpoint, Jesus was privately murdered by the religious, judicial leaders of Israel. This is what the Holy Spirit said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. From the eternal Godhead standpoint, he gave his life for us. An innocent person dying as a substitute for guilty people. And so Jesus Christ leaves heaven, comes to this earth, leaves a perfect life, goes before a corrupt legal system, is accused of all kinds of false things, is identified as a criminal, is identified as a troublemaker, as a sinner. And we'll see in a couple of weeks that a wonderful exchange takes place. Those that are willing to let Jesus identify with their sin in their life, 
they'll be able to have the identity of Jesus as the just one. What a wonderful exchange. Not only did he become our substitute, he becomes our righteousness. And we'll look at that in a few weeks. But if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I guess the question is this. How are you going to pay for sin? God says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Jesus is your gift. He identifies as you, the sinner, so that you, by faith, can identify as Christ the righteous. And the Father will view you that way, and we'll look at that. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21 if you want to read it later. But that's the good news of this Easter season, is that Jesus Christ, the just one, died for you, the unjust. Let's